Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week here on KOPN.org, we have the pleasure of talking to someone who is building a more humane world from the inside out. And my guest today is uh, Veronica Smith, uh, a Sacramento, California businesswoman, economic philosopher, and author of When Communities Disappear, The Unspoken Truths of Community Revitalization Ideologies and Policies in the United States. In 2018, she founded Impact Brands Incorporated, a consulting and advisory firm that specializes in strategic planning, analysis, and assessment in the areas of community and economic development, community engagement, and community revitalization. Uh, She has a master's in business administration, and this is the first time we've gotten to talk to her. So welcome, Veronica. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you as well, Dick. And here you have a book. Um, I have a book. Here we are, budding authors. (laughs) And I appreciate you having uh, the book sent over. I I got to read it. Uh, I marked it up. And uh, it's it's an interesting, to me, a history uh, of things that I grew up being aware of. Because I'm up there. And... uh, I worked a summer in Chicago in the 60s. Uh, I, uh, am, I'm in Missouri, uh, close to St. Louis, Kansas City, uh, grew up in Columbia. Uh, we had our shanty town right next to my neighborhood. Uh, you know, it was you know, an urban renewal and all that stuff. And you're, you're unpacking uh, or at least raising a lot of these historical um circumstances and asking some really important questions. I'd like to just step back and let you tell us about your book or about yourself. Uh, kind of just, uh, it's your microphone and I'll, you know, I've been listening closely, so I'll follow up on whatever you have to say. Great. Well, let me just start with, um, I'm originally from Akron, Ohio. So I'm originally a Midwest girl. Oh, um, my father was from Akron. My mother from Baymanet, Alabama. And mm. some way we ended up here in Sacramento, California. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I've had an interesting perspective of community. And somewhere along the lines after college, I stumbled upon the field of economic development. Had no idea what it was. It wasn't what I embarked on. And through the 12 years, I think, that I worked for the county of Sacramento, I really learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about what community really means. And that experience really helped shape the work that I would embark upon as it relates to working in communities and working with individuals that live in the communities that we live, work, play, visit Mm -hmm. family and friends in. Mm -hmm. And so 
Over the course of the last 20 years of working primarily in Northern California, Sacramento, California, I've had some very interesting experiences. And I think one of the most humbling and one of the most important lessons that I've learned in this field is the importance of understanding people, the, the importance of understanding culture and really being able to take myself out of myself as an academic or as a practitioner mm -hmm. to, to understand why people operate that they operate, why people live in the places that they live, why people have the religious beliefs that they have. And it wasn't until I was able to have that coming to Jesus moment that I was really able to begin to embark upon my best work with which probably, honestly, I'll say is just beginning um, now that I'm in my early 40s. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a, a journey, I would say, a journey of self-growth mm -hmm. and just a journey of uh, taking note, taking note of the mistakes that I've made as a practitioner, as a businesswoman, to really get better. And it, and it took that, it took this book, this book was really, there were really some moments in doing this research and just trying to figure out how can I make these topics make sense in one book, which is why for some, each chapter could really be its own book. It's, it's meant to just, you know, take a, a small bite of the apple of this colossal uh, issue and challenge that we really are facing here in the United States. Mm -hmm. But hopefully that's a somewhat of a snapshot of, of kind of the things that influenced me um, and what really sparked sparked the the fire under me to get this this book done on top of it happened. I wrote it and finished it during COVID. So I had a lot of downtime to <laughs> to really sit and think right. and 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 feel productive. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. I think uh, somewhere it says that you either worked with the mayor of Sacramento or, or his his or her, I don't know who it was, a team uh, for a number of years. Is that, did I read that right? Yes, the previous mayor, uh, Kevin Johnson, I had the um, opportunity to work with his team um, when he was doing a, his 3.0 economic development strategy prior to him um, leaving office. I still do work with the current mayor as a volunteer on, you know, issues facing communities, as well as with the uh, new council member for a North Sacramento area. Um, so still, still very um, embedded in, in community in Sacramento and working with some of the elected officials that are, are doing work in this space. Mm -hmm. I'm part of community theater, and I have a sense of what that community, what community means in that context. And it's interesting in your book, I'm not sure how you feel about the definition of community or if communities exist or, or you know, it, it's, it's interesting to see the word community used so um, broadly or specifically, I don't know, I'm just kind of trying to get to where, what you think about the word community, the meaning of community. Mm -hmm. I think that, as you said, it is, it, it, it does tend to be used very broadly. And I think that it's one of those words that people just say, mm 
mm-hmm. without having ever really took a moment to really process what it means. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most pivotal moments for me as it relates to what community means was having the opportunity to uh, go to Uganda um, mm. in 2019. And specifically as it relates to the black community and being a black woman um i really learned there in uganda what community really means when you when you think about or when i think about how i engage with people here in sacramento whether it's family whether it's friends the business community the political community and then i think about when I landed in Uganda and how I was welcomed and how we sat together and we ate together. And even though I was in my hotel, like tired, like, okay, when is everyone going to leave? That's just what they do because you are family, you are community. So everyone eats together and then you spend time having tea together and you're really doing nothing, but it really just made me sit back and say, wow, this is, really, truly community. And so oftentimes when it comes to things like community development and economic development, you'll get groups of people who are advocating on behalf of a community that they may not even live in. They may just work in that community or be an advocate for a cause. And there might be people that happen to um, fall in line with that cause. And, And that's where that can be a very dangerous thing because if other people don't have an understanding of the people that one might be claiming to represent on behalf of whether it's the black community or African-American community, Latino community, it's very dangerous because we don't all, all black women don't think like me, Right. all black children, we are all our own people and we've been raised in different households, which are in themselves communities. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we we go out into the world and we get educated and then we forget how we grew up and we forget what community really meant before we were aware of the word community. Right. Well said. So speaking of families, did you come from a big family, a small family? I am the youngest of uh, three, mm-hmm. three sisters. Um, oh my goodness! I, I'm one of four brothers, or four brothers. I'm so I had three brothers. So here we go. Okay. <laughs> four boys, four girls. Yes. Yeah, so I was the youngest, um, and so that was it for us. You know, my mom had a pretty big, big family. She was one of eleven. Um, my dad had a had a relatively. Um, big family as well, seven. I mean, and maybe that's not big these days, but for me, just having just the the three of us. So then when you look at the extension of, you know, my mom and her 10 siblings, um, you know, they've had many children and, you know, they marry. And so holidays look a lot different depending on what side of the family that you're on. So have you been back to Alabama? I have, I have, I've, the last time I went back was about um, seven years ago. Shame on me, um, just because there is, we have so much family, so much family there. I was supposed to make the trip this past, this year, but COVID kind of um, 
shut that down. But my grandmother is there. I have many aunts there, cousins, and they are also the epitome of community, like having that big family in the South. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is uh, a a different uh, culture, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Yeah. Are you uh, trying to create a community in Sacramento of, I don't know, friends, family? Definitely. I would definitely say that I have several communities here in Sacramento. So depending on um, what the issue is. So I'm involved in so many different things. And, you know, I have a very diverse mix of friends. And some of us, you know, there I have my political circle. I have my just girlfriend circle, let your hair down circle. You know, I might have my I have my spiritual circle. So mm-hmm. so those are all definitely communities that I'm very intentional um, as it relates to nurturing it personally. And then outside of that, there's the broader community that I'm looking to to always impact and help and support. So as a consultant, your business, I would say, that you started uh, Impact Brands, what are you trying to do with that? Well, with that, I work with uh, government institutions, private landowners, nonprofits, academic institutions who are trying to either advance projects or advance policies as it relates to the communities that they operate in. And so what that looks like is I might get a call or I might respond to a request for a proposal uh, where someone is looking to do a specific thing with a specific population in the community that they represent. So whether it is related to a transportation project um, that might impact an area of primarily Latino or um, African-American individuals who um, have not been at the table engaging on projects like that. Mm-hmm. That that would be an example of something that I'm um, doing right now, or it might be a development, a major development project that is coming to a community and threatening to um, potentially displace people that are in the community. So whether it's um, helping to formulate the right strategies to reach people in the community and find a solution that will be healthy for all, or I would say most, because mm-hmm. we can't please everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- but those are those are in a nutshell um, the the types of projects that I engage in on behalf of my clients. It seems as though your book is pointing out how folks like you were not very much around when so many communities disappeared. Correct. Um, and your sort of critique of that is, uh, <laughs> let me translate it <laughs> into, into who I am and what I see. Uh, well, let me just give an example. Uh, you, this is not, I don't think, in your book. But uh, here's a guy that did just that without checking with the community. Robert Moses... Uh, in his urban planning of New York, bulldozed primarily black and Latino homes to make way for parks, chose the middle of minority neighborhoods as the location for highways, 
and deliberately designed bridges on the parkways connecting New York City to beaches in Long Island to be too low for buses from the inner city to access the beaches. Some reviews of Moses' career are critical of characterizing Moses as a racist, an opponent of mass transportation. So it felt like it could have been in your book because you go through a number of historical things. Uh, did Robert Moses come across your viewing screen in your research? Um, yes, I actually have a, a a book, a book or two that I've been gifted. Um, and so definitely. <laughs> yeah. Most definitely. And then uh, a book that I grew up with uh, in my college days was called uh, The Other America by mm -hmm. Michael Harrington, mm -hmm. which, you know, when communities did disappear and continue to disappear, so many of us are unaware that they even existed in the first place. Exactly. So, uh, well, we're going to talk more about when communities disappear uh, after a short break, I'd like to uh, reintroduce you as I uh, welcome again uh, listening guests wherever you happen to be, to be today listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry here on KOPN.org, your community radio station uh, out of Columbia, Missouri. I'm your host, uh, Dick Dalton, and my guest today is Veronica Smith. Uh, from Sacramento, California, and she is the author of When Communities Disappear, The Unspoken Truths of Community Revitalization, Ideologies, and Policies in the United States, which is you know, sort of the, the main point that we want to focus on today is the book and what these ideologies and policies have been in what has been called revitalization, but mm, boy, to read your book, I'm not so sure there was much revitalization of things. So welcome again, <laughs> Veronica. So glad to have you here. Revitalization is part of your new consulting business, uh, Impact Brands. Uh, what do you think about revitalization? What, what, it doesn't have a great history. That's exactly correct. And I think that it just depends on if we're talking about revitalization of place or revitalization of people. Mm -hmm. Historically, and from a, a practitioner perspective, uh, revitalization has focused primarily on making places look better. <laughs> if we're being honest, it's mm -hmm. been about, you know, looking at communities that some might have had potential from an economic perspective. Some might just be eyesores. And so historically, when we look at some of our, the, the programs and policies that are referenced in my book, the focus has been on slums, mm -hmm. on making blighted spaces look better, making these places look more palatable for the people who had an issue with those places most. Now, revitalization for me looks a lot different than what revitalization looks like for, for those that have taken a textbook course on revitalization. And for me, it really is more or less about revitalizing 
mindsets first and foremost. You know, and I don't go into that a lot because a lot of this work happens by gaining understanding of what it is that you're dealing with. And so you're right. Um, in, in a lot of places where there were revitalization policies and programs, it does appear that not much was revitalized. And that is, and that was the problem. And that is why a lot of these programs don't exist, or many of them just over the years have changed names to become something else because people recognize that they were failures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the town I live in right now, Jefferson City, Missouri, there was a community a black community that was termed the foot because it was down at the foot of the hill of the historically black university that I taught at. And somebody up there decided that the um, expressway, if it came through here, then we could fix this and we could do that. And the whole foot community was obliterated. Mm-hmm. And I, not even a marker. Very recently, uh, there's been much more focus on how to honor that community and and a little bit of rebuilding or revitalization, but, you know, very little. Uh, And up in Columbia, where we're broadcasting from KOPN, uh, there was, back in the day, the Sharp End district, community, black community. And, uh, well, it, uh, it just didn't, like you say, it just didn't fit the image that we want of our of our area in Columbia. And it got urban development. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure a number of folks might have had a warmer home, but as far as community went, it, there wasn't much effort for revitalizing community. Just as you said, it, it, it looked a lot better, better as a quote in quotes so we're familiar you know even in our small towns of of things that uh, happened on huge scale in new york city or chicago or st louis wherever and i imagine happened in san in sacramento uh i don't know what's going on out in sacramento mm-hmm. can you uh help us understand what you're actually in a sense, dealing with in in that area? Mm -hmm. Well, we've definitely seen communities disappear in Sacramento or or be relocated, Mm -hmm. or I'm not even sure what another word could be. I I always try to use my, choose my words very carefully because this can be a very sensitive topic for a lot of people. Um, But a lot of people don't know that the history of Sacramento, if we think about our downtown, if we think about where the river is located and where the city of West Sacramento is in proximity to the city of Sacramento and and people think about the big pretty Macy's building that is downtown and now we have this new King's Arena or Golden One Arena because mm-hmm. it's not just, it's a sports and entertainment arena. Mm. And that revitalization project was probably the third for Sacramento. And a lot of people don't understand that people used to live there. There was a a large presence of um, Japanese families, African-American families who, under the auspices of urban renewal, had to be moved to pave way for 
the downtown core, you know, the central city core that we have today. Now, what we see today doesn't look like the original urban renewal project, but if people just do a little bit of, of digging or asking, they'll be able to see who was there originally and what this new favorite place that people like to frequent once looked like and who lived there. So, so definitely it's, it's, it's happening all over Sacramento. um, Primarily when you look North to South uh, here in Sacramento, a lot of the, the challenges, a lot of the lower income communities or more challenged communities are in South Sacramento and North Sacramento. And, um, there's a gentleman uh, by the name of Jesus, I believe last name Hernandez, who's done a lot of work on redlining in Sacramento. He actually used Sacramento as his case study to show um, the history of redlining in Sacramento. And he does a lot of explanation on why when you look at like your East Sacramento, your Curtis Park, your Land Park, which are very affluent communities, Um, versus when you look at your communities in North Sacramento and South Sacramento, it's like night and day. And so Mm -hmm. he maps out, he maps out the story of Mm -hmm. redlining in Sacramento to, to convey why you might see million dollar houses there and, you know, $20,000 houses in these areas with no infrastructure investments, with no resources, with no basic necessity type of assets in the community that you see in other communities. So this has happened everywhere. Mm -hmm. A lot of people just aren't aware because it's not a history that we often talk about, but Mm -hmm. it's important, especially when it comes to new planners Mm -hmm. and, you know, new economic development practitioners that are trying to make things happen. But if you don't understand that history, a lot of times people will come in and be proposing things that actually used to be in place 30 years ago, but but mm-hmm. they would never know that because they don't understand the history of the neighborhood that they're working in. Right. Uh, you make me think of Raisin in the Sun and uh, how that put a uh, face on blacks moving into a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, for many whites, I'm sure that was the first time they had ever known that that was what was going on unless they happened to be you know in a neighborhood that uh that that was happening in so uh, how's this uh gentleman um publicizing the redlining history um well he's his work is now national so um he is you know talking about this internationally he's done some reports Um, in the city of Sacramento. At one point, he was a professor at UC Davis. And and just in my doing my research, I just happened to stumble upon him and started, you know, paying attention to the nexus and learning about things that, that I, you know, answers that I had been searching for and, and couldn't find. And he just happened to have done a lot in this area. And it was, it was by chance, he was a real estate broker. Um, who started discovering some things in, Mm. in covenances and he wanted to do something about it. And so he went and got educated and got his PhD so that he could begin, you know, having a, 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 
a bigger platform to discuss some of these things. Mm-hmm. And and that's how it all happened for him. Well, fascinating. And and there are probably people in pockets around the country, around the world that are taking pieces of the big puzzle. Um, but it wasn't redlining sort of uh, a cooperative policy that involved not only about politicians, but bankers and real estate people. And I mean, it had to be agreed to by a, a large swath of the white population. Oh, yes. It was definitely a, um, a I'd say, a government policy. You know, a lot of these mm-hmm. things that, that have impacted communities for decades were done under the leadership of government. Mm-hmm. And so that was a policy that was supported um, across the board from both the public sector and the, and the private sector. And obviously they had to work hand in hand for it to be a right. success. <laughs> so so <laughs> most definitely, and, and when I reference masters of community, mm-hmm. that is a prime example. That, that type of policy was a prime historical example when I reference the masters of community. So you brought up Robert Moses. He would be mm-hmm. a master of community who was very um, strategic and scientific and economically savvy as it related to him understanding the power of policy mm-hmm. and how to use that to make his economic situation better off. Even though he was never an elected official. Exactly. He just had appointments to these different strategic <laughs> uh, boards and whatever that allowed that to happen. Oh, yeah. So you call yourself a master of community, right? Yes. And and yet it, it has a, a checkered background. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, uh, help us see masters of community in, in a positive light here. I think the positive light is you have to understand what's happening to you in order to um, make your situation better and make your community situation better. And so if you've ever heard that saying, um, what is it? Don't hate the player, hate the game. Okay. At this point in life, what can we do? We can't do, we can't go back in time to disrupt or undo the damage that has been done. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't damage for everyone because, you know, there's always two sides. So there's winners and there's losers. Some Mm -hmm. are going to benefit and some not so much. And so one of the things that I came to learn was the importance of understanding policy Mm -hmm. law and the importance of being able to move an agenda. So oftentimes we see, especially in the black community, um, we will march and we will protest and we will, you know, storm city hall with tears and anger for something that has happened. But what can be done with that? Yeah. And and while I am very compassionate and sympathetic as well as empathetic to the emotion um, that is at play when things happen that people don't agree with, 
I had to figure out, well, when I don't agree with it and when I don't like it, what is it that I can do to change it? Because I know that marching and shouting and putting my anger on public display is not going to change it. Mm -hmm. And so we all have the ability to be masters of our own community. It may not be on the scale of a Robert Moses, um, because some, you know, depending on one's perspective, he was their hero. He was a genius. He was, you know, many things. And one has to give him credit for how he was able to manipulate a a system, whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. You can manipulate systems for good. So there is always, you know, you can always perceive a good, an evil, a negative, a positive in all things. And Mm -hmm. so the question is, how can we figure out how to take what one might have used for bad and selfish gain Mm -hmm. to for there to be solutions that are good for the greater good? you know, to your point about humanity. Right. A more humane world. So you need to understand policy. So you've got to read the fine print. You've got to see how the wording in this paragraph uh, is supported by the wording uh, seven pages over in another paragraph. And if you don't see both of them, you know, fixing one paragraph doesn't fix the problem. This is pretty detailed work, I would guess. Yes, very detailed. Um, but we have to remember that, you know, policies and laws are made for a reason. People don't just like, you know, come, you know, just suddenly decide, oh, I'm just going to do a policy about that. <laughs> right. you know, th- there, There's always bigger forces at play that put things into place. Mm-hmm. And so um, sometimes there'll there'll be a lot of pushback by those who understand what is in that fine, fine, fine print 500 pages in Mm -hmm. that most people will never have the time to pay attention to. Right, right. Which makes it, wow, uh, a deep work, (laughs) deep dig. (laughs) Very. Uh, Yeah. So do you have a, a, I suppose, in a sense, a... a team that you work with, uh, I know you may be a private consultant yourself, I'm not sure, but how do you, how does it work for you? Um, I, I have multiple teams, honestly. So depending on what it is that I'm working on, um, and in this, in this field it's common for whether it's developers or whether it's other consultants to partner with other firms. So I do that often. So I don't do let's say we're looking at political analysis or demographic analysis as it relates to how people vote in a community and how that you know impacts their outcomes. That's not what I do, but I partner with people that that do that. Right. Um, if it's you know financial analysis or fiscal analysis as it relates to a potential project and whether or not that project will work, I have another team that helps with that, with that. So I would say that I'm more of a the visionary, the strategist, and I can write policy like no one's business or understand policy so that whatever it is that we're working on can happen. Because if the right policies aren't in place for, for that project or that thing or that building um, to be built or constructed, then we have a problem. And so that's really my area of being able to articulate, well, we're probably not going to be able to do this because of this, but we might need to bring in A, B, and C to the team to to accomplish this this goal. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's levels of, I mean, policy is uh, 
uh, ward policy, city policy, county, state, federal. I mean, it's uh, amazing uh, the layers of policy that have been woven together in in an incredible tapestry to sort of protect those that feel threatened (laughs) (laughs) by other folks. Yeah. It's definitely an art and a science. Mm. Yeah. Well, I commend you on on the work, and my you will have uh, full time employment for the rest of your life. I'm no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and I, speaking of that, I I'd like to read a quote from your book, and then we'll take another short break and reintroduce you, but. After the break, I'd like to read it again, and, and maybe we can talk about it. Uh, it's early in the book, and it, it just jumped out at me. I put a big box around it and the stars and this kind of thing. Uh, so this is a quote from Veronica Smith's book, uh, When Communities Disappear. And when you get the book, you can find the quote on page 22. Unless we are equipped to control the things that people believe, perceive, prioritize, and understand, we will never alleviate poverty or truly revitalize communities, assuming there really is such a thing. Ooh, just, I just, every time I read it, I love it. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to read it again in just a minute, but first I'll take a a short break and say uh, welcome friends for Uh, tuning in today or uh, listening to the podcast today of Glocal News in Social Artistry here on your community radio station, kopn.org, 89.5 FM on your uh, radio dial. Uh, We appreciate your support and uh, your continued um, valuing of the programs that we have here on KOPN. Uh, This particular show, Glocal News and Social Artistry, uh, tries to focus on people that are building a more humane world from the inside out. And we get to talk to folks actually all around the country and occasionally even around the world uh, that are doing just that in their own special and unique ways. And my guest today is Veronica Smith, uh, businesswoman out of Sacramento, California. Uh, she worked in, communi- in community uh, government uh, for a while uh, and now has her own business uh, called Impact Brands, I believe. Welcome back, uh, Veronica Smith. This has been fascinating to talk and, and uh, you can say a word and then I'm going to read that quote again. <laughs> Again, thank you so much for having me on the show, Dick, and I have definitely enjoyed this conversation. I love when conversation can just flow. Cool, cool. Okay, well, I I think some conversation is going to flow from this quote, so I'm going to read it again. (laughs) Uh, Like I said, folks, it's on page 22 when you get your copy of When Communities Disappear by Veronica Smith. Here it is. Unless we are equipped to control the things that people believe, perceive, prioritize, and understand, we will never alleviate poverty or truly revitalize communities, assuming there really is such a thing. 
Wow. Where do you want to start, Veronica? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, are we ever able to control those things? Never. We can never control. We can only influence, in All my right. opinion. All right. So you're an influencer. I'm an influencer. Yeah, we have influencers. Actually, we all have a little influence. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we can't control. Does that mean that it follows that we will never alleviate poverty? Um, the odds of us alleviating poverty, if we just think about a government definition, in my opinion, it'll never happen. Uh -huh. um, and the reason that I say that it will never happen is because if we just go back to our earlier conversation of how we define things. Mm -hmm. So when we say, if I say my mission is to alleviate poverty mm. for all of Sacramento, okay. that might mean something to me that, but it might be something completely different to the other 10 people that are also, that also have a mission to alleviate poverty. So there is the, my definition as a practitioner but then let's say I go to someone who by federal or state definition is poor and I have a conversation in, with them in their home about their living conditions and we're having this conversation over dinner and they're just as happy and just joyous and just ecstatic that I'm there in their home and that they have the opportunity to cook for me. If I attempt to bring up a discussion about them being poor and getting them out of the poor living conditions that I have found them in on this lovely dinner day <laughs> that we're mm -hmm. having, right. they, they would probably um, usher me out of their home very quick, fast and, and in a hurry. And so when we think about a practitioner's lens, so whether it's revitalization, as we discussed before, the original goal of urban renewal, which became the term revitalization, was to clear the slums, mm -hmm. to clear blight, to clear the, the conditions, the aesthetic conditions that one was living in to make it better for whether it's government purpose, real estate purpose, economic, whatever the case may be, then that removes the person and a person's soul as it relates to how they see and feel about their conditions. Mm -hmm. And so if we're not revitalizing people in terms of one's educational level, mm -hmm. in terms of one's own philosophical views about their situations, then we'll, we'll never alleviate poverty. And so if I go back to my example of my experience in Uganda, I learned that the average family lives on 7,000 US dollars per year in this particular place that I was in. So I think if we look at, um, I think poverty for the city of Sacramento, it, it's, it depends on how many people are living in the family, 
um, and a bunch of different factors. But let's just say, you know, poverty here in Sacramento is still $24,000 or less. It might be $40,000, depending on how many people are in the household. So some would look at that number as like, wow, if I could make $17,000 a year because all I'm bringing in right now is four, then what are we doing? So to, to, to make a long story short, if we are not starting from a common place as it relates to what poverty means and as it relates to what one's circumstances are and what their level of understanding is about the fact that they're poor, mm -hmm. then what are we doing? And this is where we miss the mark when it comes to revitalization programs that tend to displace people or remove people from where they were and put them elsewhere, which can in some occasions cause even more problems. Right. It's because we determine what the solution should be for people without taking into account what's in that person's mind and heart and soul as it relates to what poverty means. Do you find that there are people that think they're poor? Um, absolutely. I find people that think they're poor. I find people that are okay with the fact that they're poor. Um, mm -hmm. And if we think culturally in, in, in some cultures and some religious beliefs, some people just feel like that is their, that is their role. That is what was meant to be. And what are the odds of us changing someone's belief system if they have accepted their condition as God's will for, for, for them? Right. Right. I mean, Jesus did say uh, the poor you have with you always. Um, so whatever that meant, um, <laughs> there will be poor. Mm -hmm. um, actually, there's a an old story that came to mind uh, about the, uh, we'll say that the, the, it was a fisherman and his family that had a, a fishing boat in the Gulf of Mexico, let's say somewhere around in the Central America area. And a person came to him and said, oh, you're such a good fisherman. Uh, I, want to, I want to make it possible for you to have 10 fishing boats and you can make this much money and you can do this and you can do that. And, and the, the man pulled out his little pipe and said, oh, no, thanks, good offer, I'm sure, for some people, but uh, we're happy with our one fishing boat. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, in some ways, it, it's just a story that, that says we don't have to be upwardly mobile, always making more, spending more, being a consumer society so that we can feed the monster that is causing, you know, 2% inflation every year. We have to have it built in. I mean, that's just the law, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I, it's almost like insane the way that that the system, the mm -hmm. economic system, of which is in partnership with the governmental system, has has just built this this uh, monster around the the word growth. Mm -hmm. If we're not growing, we must be dying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, nothing in nature grows beyond its sustainable bounds exactly so let's look at this differently maybe 
Whoops, I got on my soapbox. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is your show. Oh, I'm sure you deal with that kind of conversation, though. Um, Definitely. And it's, you know, what can we do? It's there's some that have it all figured out. And then there's some who aren't concerned. Hmm. And there's some that are concerned and don't have it figured out and feel frustrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like you're in a very valuable position uh, where you're, you're building a network of people that have their own skill sets and those skill sets are complementary in a way that there's a common, maybe common vision, common goal that connects you with your um, working partners. Is that a fair way to say it? Yes, it's, it's definitely a fair way to say it. And sometimes there's not always a common goal, but there are folks who are interested in you and your work who want to understand who will bring resources to the table to figure it out. And I'm just going to guess, but I, I'm going to guess that your networking in, involves a diverse um, group of people. Yes, definitely. Um, very diverse, very mm -hmm. diverse group of people. In other words, there might be a, a, a white man somewhere involved. Yes, I definitely, um, I could not do this work without some very talented, committed white men on the team. <laughs> so definitely, um, I can think of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a melting pot of, of people that are on the team um, rowing the boat with me. Mm -hmm. And that in itself, to me, feels like part of the solution that it's not an either or it's we're all in the boat together let's row together <laughs> exactly for the good of all not just for the good of some yeah. exactly hmm well I, I'm uh, I'm glad you're there doing that work and I'm I'm now more even more interested in in uh, finding people in my own communities that are probably here doing somewhat similar work mm -hmm. um, and finding where those networks are we have a a local group uh, called building community bridges is a uh, non-for-profit group that's trying to network a uh, relatively new group in terms of years here um, and I'm sure there are many others that are at some stage of working together to make um, revitalization from the inside out. Maybe that's mm -hmm. a, a reasonable mm -hmm. way to think of it instead of, uh, well, we're going to revitalize from the top down <laughs> so that we, oh, right. <laughs> where, where did those people go? I, I, they were here a minute ago. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. And that was the whole point of the book is to stimulate thought. It wasn't to to say, oh, I have all of the answers. I have all of the solutions. It was 
to really convey that we need to be thinking about some things in a in a different way that we that we're than we're thinking about them. And the way that you do that is to go back and figure out where we came from and how we got here in order for us to course correct going forward. Yeah, I I will go to almost any chapter in your book and to the last uh, paragraph or two. Uh, I'll just I just randomly went to the end of chapter four. Here we see, uh, I ask again, whose responsibility is it to revitalize a community? Is it the role of the people who live there? Is it the role of the church? Is it the role of the government and politicians? Is it the role of private interest? Is it the role of everyone except those who are considered poor and in the underclass? Whose job, it, whose job is it to define what and who should comprise a community? Do these questions even really matter? So you're the master of asking questions that really are worth spending some time thinking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, they deserve answers. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, do you find yourself um, being asked to s present those questions in group meetings? Uh, are, are, do you have a chance to do, I don't know, maybe it's Zoom these days, Zoom discussions and your questions get put out there? Um, you know, honestly, I do a lot of work um, behind the scene. So mm. I give other people these talking points. Okay. Um, and the the truth about me is that I don't like to be in the forefront. I will when I have to. Um, obviously, I, I have a voice. I'm able to speak, but I'm more comfortable um, giving others the platform mm -hmm. to do this work, especially if they are a leader in their community, mm -hmm. especially if they are perceived as being the leader. It really needs to be them. So it's not so much my interest in facilitating, it's more or less my my interest and my gift to be that person that pulls these things out and puts it on the table mm -hmm. so that people can better their own conditions, situations, neighborhoods, communities. And if, if they're talking about these questions, that means there's going to be understanding where the different uh, individuals and group pockets uh, intersect and where they don't. And, and mm -hmm. yeah, wonderful way to approach it. I, I, I think that's a, <laughs> that's a good lesson for a lot of us. Hey, why don't you just ask good questions instead of <laughs> preach to me all the time? <laughs> yes, yes. If we, if, if we only did more asking seeking understanding and listening how much further would we all be <laughs> wasn't uh, it saint francis one of his things uh, seek uh, more to understand than to be understood is that yes yes uh, indeed especially when you're when you're doing community work mm -hmm. it that mm -hmm. it's supposed to be about that very thing versus us yeah. as individuals Wonderful. Well, uh, we have a couple of minutes. Um, you have 
many more things on your mind to share. Um, can you just uh, take a, a nice breath and share what's on your heart for your for these folks listening on KOPN today? Definitely. I think that one takeaway that I could give to those listening is that we all have a gift and we have the responsibility to figure out what that gift is and then create as much impact in the world that we can once we discover what that gift is. And that's really what, when communities disappear, is all about for me. It's okay, I think, I believe that this is a gift that I've been given. So how can I share it with the world? And then it's all about what can I do after? So this is done, but it doesn't end here because there's more in us as long as we exercise the gifts that we've been given, then there's always more where that came from. So I would just encourage our our readers to, to tap in and then give that to the world. And it doesn't end here for when communities disappear and for the work that I'm doing. Um, I'm actually working on a platform, a discussion platform called The Uncomfortable Couch. Hmm. Um, so that's been in production for the last year. Mm -hmm. And so we can continue this dialogue. We can continue these conversations with people that are doing great work in their communities that don't often get a seat or a microphone because they're not an elected, they're not a celebrity. And so people aren't tapping in to the great things that they are doing. And so that that's what's coming next and the and how I'll continue to share my gift with the world as best as I can, as long as I'm here on the planet. Great. Uh, now you have a website, at least one that uh, people could find you at. Are you always Veronica Ann Smith? Yes. Um, I'm always Veronica Ann Smith professionally, at least. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we can find you at veronicaannsmith.com? Yes, that is correct. All right. And then from there, it'll link to, to other things and other ways that people can get involved. And your book is When Communities Disappear, Veronica Smith, Sacramento, California. What a great pleasure. I, I totally enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you. Okay, and friends, uh, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.